Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This is the second episode where our lead pastor at High Point Church, Nick Gibson, is interviewing Dr. Nathaniel Jeanson about his book, Replacing Darwin, The New Origin of Species. Dr. Nathaniel Jeanson is a young earth creationist, so Nick and Nathaniel are going to be talking about that in this episode. We hope you enjoy it. So what are some other, like, if you're talking to a relative, imagine like a 26-year-old who's been to university, who's like, who's a believer, they believe in the resurrection of Jesus, they believe in the Bible, right? And they're like, yeah, I just, I guess I assumed there wasn't a problem. Like, why should, like, what are the, what are the scientific reasons? I, what, what's some other, like, red meat you could give them? Like, you know, if you looked into this, I mean, this is kind of helpful to say, because here's what I'm assuming, Nathaniel. I'm assuming that if, for some reason, this is obviously a counterfactual. If for some reason, like we found the non-risen body of Jesus Christ, and we found out that all the documents or hypothesis stuff about the Old Testament being wrong was all true, and everything you could imagine attacking the Bible was all correct, you might still not be an evolutionist. Even if you lost your faith, you'd be like, well, no, I still think the scientific evidence still points to a young earth. Like, what would be those things where you'd be like, no, I just think the science points to a younger earth, right? So you've said a few, are there, are there some other ways that you can describe for people and just be like, look, this is a real problem with evolutionary theory from a, a like from a biological perspective that you should know about. In terms of anti-evolutionary arguments, what I still fall back on is Michael Behe's work. So this is not a question of, does the evidence look like evolution is true? It's a question, can evolution work the way Darwin said? But he, of course, quotes from Darwin, says here's his test for evolution, which is what you need. If evolution is to be scientific, you have to give a way by which it could be falsified. Mm-hmm. And what I found fascinating is, so he published his book, Darwin's Black Box, in 1996. Like 90, 86? 96, sorry. 96, yeah, yeah. Because I went to college in 95, and it was kind of a splash, I remember. Yeah, yeah. And... His basic argument is there are systems within our cells and the cells of other species that have mutually interdependent parts, which means by definition you cannot evolve it step by step. Natural selection cannot select for a function that doesn't exist unless all the parts are there. And the simplest mm-hmm. example, of course, in oversimplification is the existence of male and female. Sexual reproduction, you can't have it existing unless you have a male and a female. And of course, it's far more complex than those two pieces. If you look at the cell biological level and all the various decorative components on the sperm and the egg and have to match up like lock and key and so forth, mm-hmm. how do you evolve that step by tiny step? And his argument is basically you can't. What has been interesting to me is to look at the evolutionary responses to that from his critics. And I've even given talks on this. You know, Here's the four major categories by which they try to refute it. They don't actually engage the argument. And I've, I've written on this as well. So to me, that's a that's a remarkable argument that stood the test of time. Yeah. I I have never heard a good refutation of irreducible complexity. I mean, I've heard a lot of ideological mythology, like just so stories that Stephen Jay Gould was not said was not a good way to do evolutionary science. Like, well, you can imagine the this and the that, but essentially what you've got is he's like, he's basically saying, look, imagine a deck of cards with like 2000 cards just stacked. Right. And you're like, look, you can always put one more card on it and get some progress. He's like, but that's not what it's really like. It's like building a card house where you keep leaning two cards against each other and they have to be like equally touching each other so you can build the next piece. And that's much harder. 
you have to get all these kinds of things right. And building the and, and biological structures are like the card house. Like you, they have to rely on each other at each step and you can't just, you can't just naturally select your way through mutation forward and assume that it's going to work unless you believe DNA through mutation can create whole new structures. That's what I've always been told by, um, by evolutionary folks that you could get, at least in theory, you could get genetic mutations that created that there was a change in coding, but in what it produced was like a whole nother structure. And so generally speaking, they, like you even had this in your book where like you could have fruit flies where you could get like the legs where antenna should be. Like you get a mutation and that mutation creates a like complete structural difference. In that case, it's like a fatal one or a terrible one. But they said, but if you can get that, you could imagine where you could get a, a DNA rewriting mutation that produced a beneficial one and then nature would select for it, right? Yeah, and that's to me why Behe's argument is so powerful because he, he doesn't deal with what, court of, what sort of wild and crazy things can we get where it, 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 it intuitively doesn't seem possible. He says, no, let's make it mathematically precise count the number of components that are involved in this structure. So he uses the flagellum and other such structures. Mm-hmm. Maybe you have 30 different interacting components where you knock it out right. one by one, and this is essential, this is not essential, or for the function at least. Uh, in those cases, you cannot explain this step by tiny step. Now, what was yeah. interesting to me is in that book, and, and perhaps more so in the subsequent book, which is, I think, The Edge of Evolution, he said, let's just right. empirically see from the experiments so to speak that have happened in nature mutation and selection with parasites and such what have we witnessed occurring and is there some sort of natural limit to change just based on what we empirically observe not derived from first principles not derived from theory but what have we seen accomplished and what i found interesting is he drew the line sort of the edge of evolution here's what mutation selection can accomplish but beyond that it doesn't seem plausible because there's probably irreducibly complex structures or other reasons we haven't yet encountered, but this is as far as we got. He draws it somewhere around the, the level of genus or family, which is right in line with what young earth creationists would say about the limits of ancestry. Mm-hmm. And, or to, to flip the equation around, young earth creationists would say that Noah took two of every kind and bore the ark, two members of the cat family. And from, those, from that pair descended the lion and tiger and house cat and all these other species, that, 30 plus species that exist within the cat family. All we would say by so-called natural processes, though enabled by a great pool of genetic diversity hardwired into them from the start. Yeah. Yeah. With the geneticist we had on the podcast last episode basically said the same thing. He's like, yeah, he's like, you can get all this like differentiation if you've got two, if you've got fertile creatures that can mate with each other and produce fertile offspring. As long as you've got that dynamic working, you can get change and you can get things happening. You can get speciation. But beyond that, I mean, you can't, you, you can't do much. Like there's, there doesn't appear to be enough elasticity in this system to make it happen. And he's like, he's like, and that, that's just like with animal mating. He's like, he's like, that's so much easier than figuring out how we got the first amoeba. He's like, people just have no idea how complex cells are. And like the people just think that you can just get to that first cell. Like it's no big deal. And he's like, you can't. Cells are incredibly complicated. And like one of the, when I think about the prima facie argument for young earth creationism, I think it's stronger than the prima facie um, one for evolution. Because if you think about what is in the biological world, and that with all the technological advancements of human beings, we have not yet rivaled some of the simplest ones. Like I'm not sure we have a motor yet that's as good as a flagellum, right? And I'm I'm like, 
it's very difficult to believe that even in like an unlimited time scale that we would naturally through evolution produce machines that, that, I mean, if you think of it at this point, right, in terms of engineering and you add up all of the engineering minds that are working together, like you're, you're talking about millions of years of human intellect working together, like multiple multiplied by libraries and cross referencing research. And you start adding in like how we could research other people's research, how many engineers have worked on different problems, how there's inter- interdisciplinary work with all those things, all the money we've poured into it. You add up all of that and you're like, how many millions of years of human intellect could you, would you say we have? And I would think it would be geometric. Like it would be an incredible amount. And yet we can't even make a machine copying a horse for the military to use to go over rough terrain. Like we're kind of getting there, but we're not there. And that just strikes me as like, like as a non-scientific specialist, it just strikes me as like a really weird argument, right? Again, like for evolution to be cool, given some of those realities. So I've, I've always like my struggle as, as a Christian layperson is, so I'm 43. I've probably read between seven and 12,000 pages in this realm of knowledge. So way more than the average intelligent Christian, right? And I still find myself in this place where like, when I read the young earth creation stuff, that's really good quality. I'm like, man, that, like that really sounds like it's got a point. And I have not heard good refutation of that. And then I, but then I read like, other like kind of like pro evolutionary people. And I'm like, man, some of that stuff sounds like, like you got to assume some of their premises are right. You know what I mean? And like, I have these long discussions. I have a brother who's a, who's a geologist. He has a PhD in um, civil engineering. He has a master's in ecology and evolution from UC Davis and so on. And, you know, like we're walking through the grand Canyon and, and I'm like, I'm trying to have all these young earth creationist geology arguments out on him. And he's like, well, uh, but there's this. And so I find myself confused and it's not because I think everybody's stupid. It's because I think everybody's pretty smart. And I can't figure out what the heck to do other than to say, well, as a theologian, I tend to think that like a historic Adam and Eve is pretty important theologically. I tend to think, right? So like, I, I think we're going to have a lot of intelligent, college-educated Christians who are intellectually interested, who now as science in all the fields that we have are getting so specialized and knowledge is exploding incredibly, they have no way to access some of these arguments and they're struggling with who to believe, right? And um, and so that's why I think the science, the creational science that you were talking about, where like we have to start making predictions and we have to start demonstrating scientifically that we can do things. I think you're right that that's really important. But how do Christians and churches like, how do we deal with this stuff? Like it's kind of getting away from us and most people are just waving their hands at it now and just being like, well, what can we do? Right? Like what, what do you encourage Christian lay people and Christian pastors and people like that to do in the milieu that we're in? If you find that interesting. Several points come to mind. First is, and I didn't really hit on this earlier to me, the critical doctrinal importance here. So and, and listeners can go to answersingenesis.org and see, you know, hold us to these arguments. But I've yet to hear a good argument reinterpreting the word day or somehow putting millions of years. Again, one of the major theological problems is how do you put death before sin? There's this whole arc that death is a bad thing. The whole Old Testament sacrificial system is death is an intruder and death is the way you pay for sin and points to Jesus' death on the cross. And so putting even animal death before sin that seems to throw a wrench in that entire theological arc. And, and textually as well, this is what I 
fall back on. Ten Commandments and, and keeping the Sabbath. It's grounded in, you, know, you work six days, rest them, because God worked six days and rested on the seventh. So if you reinterpret the original days as long periods of time, how do you make sense of that commandment? So there's all sorts of arguments to me theologically, and that's, that's to me for Christians. That should be our guiding principle in life and practice and everything. That should be the foundation. That's the foundation for me. And in terms of engaging the culture, I'm glad you brought up that point about design, and I, I failed to do so. But that to me is the Romans 1 point, and it is the most eminent, prominent argument in the world. Life just looks designed. I mean, even Richard Dawkins says biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. Right. No one can escape this. Yeah. I remember this, there's one scientist who says part of the task of the biologist is to continually tell yourself that the thing you are looking at is not designed. Exactly. And that, uh, which I think is a great quote. <laughs> yeah. And so we have it in scripture, Romans 1, that, that the things of God are clearly seen. People are without excuse. They know it. And they're, they're, we're standing, to include myself in it, we're standing in a position of strength. What's going on, Romans says, is, is not that people don't know, it's that they're actively suppressing it. I have a colleague who taught, David Menton, who taught uh, anatomy, anatomy and physiology at Washington University School of Medicine for about 33 years. And he told me a really interesting story about his interactions with his unbelieving and believing colleagues that to me illustrates this perfectly. He says, most Christians I talk to, if I ask them, were there ever times of doubt in your life where you wondered, is, is Christianity true? Could, could this all be a fairy tale? Is, is something wrong here? He said, most Christians will say, yeah, I've had times of up and down, strong faith, weak faith. It comes and goes. Maybe not comes and goes like totally lost, totally gated, but that's just the, the Christian experience. Look at the people of Scripture and John the Baptist asking Jesus, are you the one? Mm-hmm. Uh, you look at David's life where he runs off to the Philistines. I mean, <laughs> there's, there's times of unbelief and belief in the Christian life. He right. said, I talked to my unbelieving colleagues, David Menton said. Mm-hmm. He, would, he would ask his professing unbelievers, was there ever times they doubted their unbelief, their rejection of Christianity? Were there, you know, did, did, did they lay awake at night and say, could, could I be wrong? Might there really be a God? Mm-hmm. He said, every single one of them to a man said, no, <laughs> never doubt. And to me, that's consistent with Romans 1 act of suppression. It's not a passive, please God, save me. It's, I wake up in the morning, and there is no God. And that's the answer you'd give if that's the attitude you have. So, mm-hmm. I view my role as an apologist as taking away the excuses. So, they, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, and my job is to come along and say, sorry, that argument against design or against Genesis, that doesn't work. Now, let's get back to the real issue. They might come up with a new one. I mean, I've done, when I was in Boston, we do street evangelism and that issue would come up, evolution. And I walked through the arguments. I remember one student in particular, and I shot them all down. Not because I'm some great apologist, but to me, the Bible's true. And it's not that hard to, to engage these arguments. And he just shook my hand and walked off. Didn't make any difference to him. Yeah. And it's, that's, in a sense, it's, it's comforting that I have the scriptures and know it's not my job to save them. God does that. God has to change the heart. My job is to present it and say, sorry, that doesn't work. And maybe they'll go home and think about it. I mean, there's, there's all of us... The fundamental sin in the beginning is pride. We all struggle with pride. The unbeliever struggles with pride. Who wants to admit I was wrong? Maybe I get, I don't know the rest of the story. Maybe he went home and thought about it in the quietness of his own room. And instead of being out in public on the street, admitting he was wrong, who knows? Only God knows. And, and it's gracious of him to use us as the instruments to, 
to preach the gospel, but those are the things I rest on. Everyone knows, everyone sees the evidence for design. I'm, I'm, I'm making my arguments from a position of strength, scripturally and practically. You know, Richard Dawkins admits it. The arguments that I've seen are good, and I have no reason to be discouraged if the person I'm talking to is not persuaded because we know there's more going on. And there's actually a book written, I think, talking about uh, many of the people who are prominent apologists have sexual abuse in their past or some sort of thing. You know, there, there's more at play here than just, well, the evidence says so. That's what they're saying. And this You're saying some the, of the apologists for evolution have some like stuff in their past? Or atheism. Where yeah. and again, it's it's not. It's that's been my. That's certainly been my experience. I, I mean, Paul Johnston's book Intellectuals from Years Ago talks about the horrifically moral lives of some of the most prominent um, Western changing intellectuals. But you say that that you've also seen that in the lives of atheistic apologists as well. I, I forget the title of the book. I wish I could remember it. But his point was not that these people were looking as an excuse for immorality, which of course we have examples of that. But in this case. Mm-hmm. I think they had been the victims of abuse, where there's some, how could God let this happen? Deep hurt. And I want to think that also played a role in Darwin's life, his daughter dying. How could God allow this to happen? And so it isn't necessarily just intellectual arguments they're giving. It's a deep personal hurt that they're trying to overcome. Yeah, and even with like somebody like Darwin who didn't, I don't think Darwin ruled out the idea of God. Wasn't he like a sort of a pseudo-agnostic kind of person? But he got to the point where he's like, if God exists... God works with our world more mechanically than providentially. Like his providence has worked out through these things he's made. So he wouldn't have saved my daughter. He's just not that imminent. Right. And so you could still be like, a, like, cause I think what some people think is like young earth creationists always believe that you're either an atheist or a practical atheist, or you're a young earth creationist. And, and I, I don't think that's true. I think that there's like lots of ways to deny and suppress the truth of the Lord and lots of like weird theological views that could easily go along with, evolutionary theory. I think that there's some relatively biblical ones, depending on how you parsed it all out. And like, as long as you had some firewalls between some things, you could try to make it work. But like, I I know so many people who would totally say, at least in Madison, well, I believe in God. I believe like, I I believe I'm a good person. I believe in God and all that. And I believe in evolution. They just believe in the kind of God who is, who functions via evolution as kind of a panentheistic um, process theology kind of thing. And so they don't, they wouldn't say they're atheists. They would even say they're spiritual. But I think the young earth creationist comes back and says, yes, but it's not biblical. It's not the God who speaks and shows himself through the scriptures, the history of the chosen people and through the man, Jesus Christ, and then through his spirit empowered church. And that's what saves. And so we need to get specific about these things and not be too general about them. Right. You would say that all these other slippery views are still just there. We don't always suppress God by saying God doesn't exist. Sometimes we suppress God by saying God just exists in a different way that I'm making up. Yeah, sorry, I should have clarified that the example I was giving with Dawkins and such and people in the past, I was thinking right, in right, the yeah, context yeah. of the question, how do, you, how do you encourage people who might feel intimidated by these yes. leading voices? Right, now, right, right, yeah, yeah. I totally agree, yes. There are many ways to express the truth about God. And what we would say, you know, Genesis is not a salvation issue, but it does hit at core doctrines. And we would all say we're in the process of sanctification. There's all parts of Scripture where... For some, it might be Genesis. I, I, I just can't believe that. I, I, I have trouble with that. I, look what would happen to me. There's surely glaring blind spots in my own life on, on perhaps other issues where I personally am lacking sanctification. I need someone to come and say, no, the Bible says this, and you're acting this way, or you're saying this way, you're thinking this way, and that's wrong. Mm-hmm. And that's what all Christians should be doing with one another, 
and exhorting one another as we see the day approaching. So that's that's yeah. to me the, the issue in the context of the church. Profess Christ, Jesus is the way, this is the gospel. But we also need to recognize these key doctrines that are grounded in Genesis, and we need to have our thinking transformed there as well. I think one of the things that young earth creationists push on a lot is this idea that if you take an evolutionary framework for origins, and then you try to put it together with a view of inerrancy, a belief that the Bible is entirely true, that when you when you start trying to integrate your scientific, what you believe is your scientific knowledge with what you believe is your biblical knowledge, you end up having to kind of sort of re-understand the Bible in certain ways. And that actually doesn't just affect your natural history, it actually affects your doctrine. Right? So like if you if you think that human beings were created via evolution, right? And they weren't created like from the dust of the earth, so to speak. And you're saying, look, my science is informing that. And I'm like working it and integrating it in my biblical knowledge. It actually can change your understanding of how God, it changes your understanding of like how God creates or how he's imminent or in what way he develops the divine image or, and I think what ends up happening to a lot of Christians is it can get befuddled and it also can get really complicated. And then people just don't really know what they're believing, even though they say they believe the whole Bible. Right. I think you and I were talking I, before we started recording. I was saying there, there's one scholar we interviewed who said they believed that Adam and Eve were created out of nothing in the garden, but there was already an evolved, essentially human race populating the earth outside of it. And my response to him was, well, then what does fill the earth mean? Like when he creates human beings and says, fill the earth, what does that mean? And, and that scholar said, well, you have to believe that the man and woman God created in Genesis 1 isn't the Adam and Eve from Genesis 2. You have to believe those are two different creation events. So that the, the humans in Genesis 1 populate the earth, and then he creates Adam and Eve. And I was like, well, then you need, now you need multiple falls, right? Because you don't believe that the people outside of the garden are functioning according to God's imprinted image, and he's given them a mandate that they haven't really done. So they fall in and you'd have to have two falls. Right. And he's like, well, you might. So, so now we're postulating another fall. And then I'm like, well, then what are Adam and Eve? Like, it, like you can imagine it making sense if you made it complicated enough, but it seems like I'm thinking like, what am I going to tell a sixth grader? Or like, what do we, what do I tell a 25 year old? Like what do I tell somebody who doesn't have time to work this out on the PhD level of how this all integrates? It seems to me that like, because I've had some people say to me, Nick, are you a young earth creationist? And I'm like, well, two to three days a week. Yeah. I mean, I'm like, um, eh. but they're like, because it seems like your theology functions like you're a young earth creationist. And I'd be like, yeah, I mean, I, I, I order my understanding of death related to sin and curse. I understand our dignity coming from a divinely created Adam and Eve who bear the image of God and created to created to bear his image, not a right. And so like, Theologically, I kind of function that way. And yet, I'm not always convinced that the right way to put the world together is to be a young earth creationist. And so, I think that there's a bunch of like evangelicals struggling with that. I see more and more evangelical churches essentially take an evolutionary view. But then they still talk about sin and redemption in the image of God and human dignity, almost like they hold a historic view that kind of assumes a young earth creationism. Does that make sense? And it sounds like, the, yeah. like, I think there's a struggle there that people have. Three stories come to mind in light of that. With regards to the struggle, the first one came to mind is when I was at a uh, Presbyterian church speaking on Genesis in Georgia. And they were talking, the, the elders were talking with me about examining students coming out of some of the 
PCA seminaries, and the, which teach old earth or maybe even some sort of evolutionary one, who knows? Mm-hmm. Depends on the seminary. And they, they mentioned one in particular where there's a noted old earth advocate and said, you know, the students who come here, the pastors who come here, and, and we examine them, become very confused. And they give their view on Genesis and maybe take an exception on this statement in Westminster Confession. And, was it, and, and so then we'll press them and say, well, you know, if you believe X, Y, and Z, this is what you believe. And they're like, oh, no, I don't believe that. It's like they've never thought mm-hmm. it through. Oh, this is the implication of what I've learned or what I thought I held to. And that, that seems to be echoing the struggle you're describing. Of they, they're trying to make sense of Genesis. Maybe they even say, well, I take exception. I don't necessarily think it's young earth. But then when they're told, here's the implications, they say, oh, no, I don't agree with those implications. Well, how do you make sense of it? So that, that was their term to me. Literally, they said they came out very confused. That was their term. Yeah. Another thing can that I comes ask, to mind, go ahead. Can I ask you a anti-young earth creationist question that like yeah. bothers that Like I've asked this and I didn't feel like I got a good answer from people. So there are some biological creatures that look like they were designed to create death. So like as a fisherman, like the Spanish mackerel. Like that strikes me as a creature just like designed to create death. Like it's, it's teeth just shred Manhattan. I don't imagine how could he anything made out of plants, right? So like when God creates the, the ocean teeming with things, right? And you look at like a Manhattan and like that's a minnow that's designed to live for a year. Like part of its design is it's not going to last very long because it's going to get eaten by the billions, right? And then you got these other creatures that like they're designed to create death, it looks like. Is a young earth argument that like there's enough like differentiating DNA that like that creature in creation like might have eaten something else. And then after the fall, as it goes through a process of speciation, just like in the last 6,000 years, because it starts eating stuff and creating death, it, it like over time naturally selects for the best death creating version of itself until it's like designed for death. Is, is that how that's handled? Like, how do you handle something that looks like it's designed to create death if you believe it was created as part of the teeming oceans or whatever? Does that make sense? There's four potential explanations at play in, in these sorts of cases. And the, the inference you're making is exactly right. If you apply design thinking, if you, if you apply the methods used to infer design elsewhere in biology, the arguments creationists would use to say, here's the overwhelming confirmation of Romans 1. That's the conclusion you lead to. You, you get to. These creatures, look. the great white looks like it's designed to tear flesh. Right. So what do you make sense of that at the beginning? That does not look like a herbivore. Yes. Right. So there's a couple things that come to mind. I want to leave that for last and, and, and broaden that question to the, to the larger question of natural evil. Everything from not just mammals and fish and dinosaurs. What do what the T-Rex eat? If we're saying right. that was in the garden. Because that would have to happen pretty fast, right? Like if you have fossils and you believe that those fossils are like less than 6,000 years old, right? Getting from not eating flesh to eating flesh, like you don't have 6,000 years. You've got like a relatively short period of time to make that happen, right? Yeah. Let me, let me broaden the question real fast, take those off, mm-hmm. and then come back to the specific example. So in some cases, and I'm thinking in the, in the microbiological realm, degeneration seems to explain pathogenesis. I think mycoplasma or one of these other uh, microbes. What, is pa- what does pathogenesis mean? They're, like the, uh, the start of diseases that are genetically based? They're, they're infectious agents that cause disease. Okay. So mycoplasma, these sorts of things. There's one particular 
microbe that is host dependent. It looks like it may have once been free living, but now is dependent upon, let's say, a human host, and it causes disease in that context. Well, you look at its genome, and it looks all messed up, as if it used to be something good, but now it's degenerated. So I think that's something everyone needs to keep in mind, is we live in a cursed world. And there are examples of natural evil that I think look like they just got messed up as part of the curse. That doesn't necessarily apply to the, apply to the shark. So you have, so you have like benign. a degenerated DNA that's something that becomes pathogenic, and then that thing like finds a niche doing evil, like killing stuff. Yeah. And that's yeah. how it survives. It survives parasitically kind of, when it yeah. could have been something different had it not degenerated. Yeah. Like, Another like thing. a lawyer or something. I'm just kidding. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> so another thing that comes to mind is the is simply a change in environment. Anthrax exists in our environment and does no harm. And within us, obviously, it's, it's terrible. E. coli exists in our gut. And this is one of the hottest fields of medical research looking at how our, our digestive bacteria and such are actually playing a role in health, even, even linking to things like diabetes, which blows my mind. But this is, this is a, a hot area of research. So yeah. There's bacteria, a lot being said about that right now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Bacteria in the gut is good. Bacteria in the blood is bad. Right. And so all you're doing is, is rupturing a surface. But that, that's an example of you know, the, the internal environment of our bodies versus you know, us in the, in the plant physical environment out there where anthrax is out there and getting inside of us. Anyway, to me, there's, there's presumably some sort of harmony, perfection in the original creation that's disrupted upon the fall and, and the curse. So there's another explanation. Again, probably applying primarily to microbes and such, but that's, that's worth thinking about. Another is, and this gets us closer to the fish and the mammals, is repurposing. Some of it is, I've, I've learned that I have to overcome some of my intuition. And what I like to do with audiences is show them pictures of skulls of various creatures with sharp teeth, like the fruit bat and the panda. Again, you look at their skulls and you don't know any better, unless I've got biologists in the audience, and oh, you know, eats meat, but it, they don't. I mean, the panda subsists on bamboo, the fruit bat, obviously on fruit. And so that that is i'd say there's there's an intuition that i think is guided by our everyday experience and i think we have to step back and say okay this is what we see now but there's a whole different purpose it could have accomplished in the beginning and and to me that's logical it's not necessarily emotionally intuitive i have to rethink it myself and have mm-hmm. to recognize i'm basing my thinking on what i can see right now but i have to be able to rethink how it may have looked in the beginning and there's a lot more that, that, that is possible that I'm not used to thinking about. But again, I, I, I remind myself I'm living in a, in a cursed creation. Can I, can I take this to the level of absurdity for a second? Because I, sure. I, I want to see how far this goes. So before the fall, do you believe that like plants died? Like that critters ate plants and some plants died? That like death means like animal and not plant? Yeah, is that, and what I, would you say that go to? Or what is, about like mosquitoes or mayflies? Like a mayfly lives one day. That looks like that's how it's made. Would that count as like death? I mean, or is there like some kind of like something that like it, like if it has eyes that can focus its pupils, like it, like that's what we're talking about? Or you know what I mean? Like sometimes I wonder, like because I feel like if I did if I, like I I did I did apologetics on the street and I learned a bunch of these arguments, I was like, look. One of the reasons to believe in Jesus is because actually the earth looks young, right? And I, and I was really good. I, I, there's some of these places where I feel like I would just get hammered, you know? Yeah. The question you, to rephrase it is, did Adam step on any ants? Did yeah. He, did he tiptoe around the garden making sure that there was nothing that 
biologists today would classify as living was destroyed. So to me, that the foundation for the answer comes back to what, is, what does the scripture actually say? How would I view it? Obviously, with a young earth paradigm. And one of the first things, one of the boundaries that comes to mind first is the command at the end of Genesis 1, you know, every tree of the garden you may freely eat. God commands them to eat plants. He commands vegetarianism in the beginning. So obviously, to me, this, this, is, this is permissible. However, mm-hmm. biologists today want to define living and non-living. The plants fall into this as not having to do with sin. With right. regards to the small little creatures, insects, roundworms, you know, there's all sorts of creatures in the soil. Did Adam dig up, or you know, what if he's had a shovel in the garden? He's digging up the soil and he chops an earthworm in half. Or did he, did he know where they were? These sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And so there, there, the question is, what does the Bible call? I think it's the nefesh chayim. I'm not a Hebrew person, but th- that's the term I think w- which is used of life. The question then becomes, what does that apply to? And I'm not enough of a Hebrew person to know exactly what that applies to. It's a, it's a question I don't necessarily have an answer to, but it, it, I guess it doesn't right. bother me. And, you know, the question, of course, you raised is, how do you answer a skeptic? And uh, I probably, in the, in the heat of that conversation, is I would say, I don't know that the Bible necessarily calls that living. I don't have an answer on that yet. I know That's not what the Bible means by living, you could say. Uh, right? maybe like what I, yeah. yeah, maybe what I Kind of like when you said before that the Bible says kinds, and yeah. some people assume that means what we mean by species. Like, two things can make, produce offspring that's fertile. That's like not what they were thinking. If they were like, it's ordered, like they're parameters and it's ordered. That's what it means. Right. And that that's what, so like, like when people say the Bible is not quote a scientific textbook, what they're supposed to mean by that is it doesn't use the same kind of language we use now when it talks about things that happened as opposed to, I think is the negative meaning of that where it's like nothing it says happened from a scientific perspective. Right. So you can say like nephesh or soul or breath, like, you could say what the Bible means by that language isn't necessarily what we say when we use those words scientifically, but the Bible means something by it and that something could be described scientifically. It just wouldn't be by this, maybe the same words the Bible uses. Right. Yeah. And I want to draw a a line here on an issue that I think is, is important because it touches on this and and jump back to the issue of uh, perspicacity. What, what is, how do we understand the Bible? Who was it written for? How do we believe it? And, and just to clarify where I'm coming from. So my position is, is that we can understand the Bible not by getting a PhD in archaeology and understanding the ancient Near Eastern context. I believe the Bible is understandable to the plowboy today, and that the only context that matters is what else the Scripture says about it. Mm-hmm. So for me, the danger is not what well, we need. To, we've misunderstood what the ancient Near East meant by this phrase. I think we can understand it today. We just have to be careful that we don't apply 1800s defined language and assume that if we say the same same English word in the Bible, because the New King James will say Genesis seven species, and of course, mm-hmm. when we say species, we immediately think this is Linnaeus's definition with some with some modern right. modifications. Right. You know, I'm sorry. We, we can't retroactively apply that. That that doesn't make any sense. But I still think we can understand it, and you look at what, other, what else the Scripture says about it. So that, to me, is how I then approach answering the question. I guess the response then to the skeptic from me would be, uh, you know, did these mosquitoes die? I'd say the first thing we need to recognize is we have a modern biological definition of what's living and non-living, and, and usually the line goes all the way down to the level of viruses, and that's where the debate is in the modern biological community. Are viruses living or not? Bacteria definitely are. Plants are and these sorts of things. But this is that's that's a modern and that's a modern practice. 
that we shouldn't necessarily retroactively apply back to the scripture. And what matters is how does right. the scripture define nefesh chayim? How does it describe living things? Right. And that's a matter that's debated. And it's something that, that I don't think we need to be, can be bothered by. It's something we should find an answer to, but it's not something we should be bothered by. And then it becomes a question of the character of God. Well, what if they are living things? Do I believe that God has of the character he would have allowed Adam and Eve to kill those things or these sorts of things? Could it be possible for them to avoid it? Sure. But it, it, to me, it's a textual question. And the immediate, my immediate response, defense maybe, to the skeptic mm-hmm. is, let's not apply modern, strict biological terms to something that was written back then. That would be, not be a fair argument. It would not be a rational argument. Mm-hmm. And instead, let's understand it within the context of the text itself. Yeah. Okay, Nathaniel, you've been so generous with your time. We've been recording for like an hour and a half now. At some point, we have to end, sadly, right? So, Nathaniel, if you're talking to Christians like I've described, like, is there something you want to help them leave with or maybe tell them what websites would be good or what resources you think are really helpful or, I don't know, make a, a plea for taking um, the Young Earth view seriously and really considering it if they haven't already? Yeah, and I, I want to – something that came to mind from an earlier question about the inerrancy that I, I wanted to return to briefly, because I think this really gets at the heart of why young earth. And part of my answer is from personal experience, seeing how it's played out. And I'm going to use biologos as an example, not because I'd like to pick on people or uh, beat professing Christians, but growing up in the church, we had seminarians come in and give lectures. And I was used to hearing theologians give arguments about slippery slopes, it doesn't need to be Genesis. It could be any theological issue. Well, if you take it this way, here's where it could eventually land. Mm-hmm. And as a student, I tend to think, well, how is that persuasive? You're talking about four generations from now, whoop de doo what does it matter? Even though I didn't necessarily say that, I think in Tootle, that was still, I struggle with listening to this guy talk about how this is the worst thing and we need to really take a stand on it. What's been surprising to me is to see this issue play out in a single generation. So, that, for example, the issue of Adam and Eve. And we mentioned, and I think you mentioned, you know, it's got strong New Testament implications. In Romans 5, we probably agree then. One man sinned, one man saved. So if there wasn't one man who sinned at the beginning, there were many. Can one man save? There's a very clear equivalence there in the text. Mm-hmm. And that's the, fun, that's the heart of the gospel. Can Jesus save? Is yeah. he the only way to God? Yeah, I think now, Romans 5 is like the toughest passage. Yeah. Like it's, I mean, it literally says, that, yeah. It's, that's a tough one to make mean something, make work, so to speak. So the slippery slope argument that I sort of imagined in my head is some theologian standing up and saying, well, we really have to take Genesis seriously because the slippery slope is you could start reinterpreting Romans 5. And I'm thinking, eh, people wouldn't do that. Maybe in five generations from now. Mm-hmm. What's been a shock to me is to see, again, to use biologos, not because I'm trying to attack them, but this is just the facts of what happened. They have been one of the most prominent organizations, theistic evolution organizations, arguing that you don't have a literal Adam and Eve. They ran a series, and and those arguments started probably and became prominent 2010-ish in my lifetime, within the last few decades. They also have run a series on their website, Rethinking the Atonement. Mm -hmm. And I was rather shocked, saying, (laughs) they're not even waiting. This isn't a slippery slope. (laughs) They're openly questioning it. Yeah, they're just slipping. (laughs) Yes. So that was, it's more like somebody shoveling their driveway and instantaneously falling on their back than somebody slowly rolling down a hill. Yeah. I'm like, this isn't even a theoretical argument about, whoa, be careful. I'm like, this is being played out in front of me right now. Right. 
Another thing that comes to mind is an experience I had in Boston College. I was invited by a group to speak on the creation evolution issue. They wanted it to be, I think, more of a debate, but couldn't find a biologist who was willing to do it. They found a philosopher, a Catholic philosopher, who was going to give a response. And he was very kind and polite, and he came up to me after the talk. Uh, there were, of course, students who came up with lots of questions. One, one, uh, one girl was asking me maybe about radiometric dating, and he came over, he interrupted us, and said, uh, what is it the deal with you Protestants? Why do you make such a big deal about the issue of Genesis? He said, you know, we Catholics believe the Bible is inspired and inerrant on issues of salvation, but not issues of Genesis and such. Basically, the limited inerrancy view that not the whole Bible is without error. Right. And so we chatted and I explained to him, you know, well, there, there's the difference. I said right there, we believe the whole Bible is without error, not just salvation issues. So we chatted and he left. Mm-hmm. And the girl was still standing there. And as soon as he walked away, she said, I can't believe that. That was her visceral reaction. I can't wake up, basically, I can't wake up every morning, decide which parts of the Bible are true and false. How can you believe a book like that? Yeah, it's, that's, that is tough. And that's, again, not to hit on biologos, but if you look at their doctrinal statement, they will not affirm inerrancy. And they've had explicit discussions. You can find articles on their website. They say, well, we're not comfortable. And basically, I think what it is, is there's diversity of opinion on that within their camp. Some believe the Bible's without error completely. Some believe it's, there might be some errors. And again, this yeah. is not slippery slope. This is what's happening right now. And I, I, I don't know that I can think of a better argument for the creationist, young earth creationist view than this is, what's, this is where it leads. And again, I think mm-hmm. the, the, the girl student encapsulates it perfectly. How can you live that way? Some people can. Some people do. But I would personally be very troubled having to say, well, maybe this part of the Bible isn't true. I mean, as soon as you let that in, that just nags at you and it, it would eat away at me endlessly. I don't know where it land, but that would yeah. that would drive me bananas. Yeah, the, I, we've had people in our church who interpret the first ten or so chapters of Genesis mythologically and believe that there is a in, there are clear enough indications after that, and as you get to to um, Abraham, and I I just I struggle with that. Like I, I get where they're coming from that the first man's name man, the first woman's name life, and like I get that there are like things you could recognize as markers of mythology. I realize that mythology is written like historical narrative in other cultures. But I have a really hard time, like in one verse, going from Babel being mythological to Abraham being real, like just like that. And I just struggle. Like I was like, okay, can you show me where these markers are? Because like I, I, I kind of see them in in the first couple of chapters of Genesis. There's some stuff in the story of Noah, but I think we want to take that mythological just because it sounds mythological because it's such a big story and it's so dramatic. It's like the wiping out of all of humanity. That just feels like a big mythological thing to us. But like. A brother killing his brother. I mean, like that, or like in Genesis, I think two, where it's like, Hey, this is where like, you can find really good onyx in the ground. Like that river flows here and that river flows there. Like it kind of tells you like the mineral rights, like, like the, the common minerals in the soil. Like, I'm like, I don't, that's not a mythological marker. That's a historical marker. Like, but we've had this in our church where some people feel comfortable believing in inerrancy, believing that the genre of these first chapters of Genesis is mythology. And that therefore everything that affirms theologically is true, but it's meant to be mythologically interpreted. And, and there's part of me that feels like if the scientific data was such that I couldn't deny that, I think I could still keep my faith and believe that. But that seems like the fallback of the fallback of the fallback. I mean, that sounds like, you know, Aragorn back, coming back to like literally the helm of Helm's Deep because you've lost every wall and every portico and everything and like that's the and then you from there you just charge out on the horses you know like it's like it just doesn't seem like that's what 
and part of the, my struggle with this is being trained in the historical grammatical method of interpret, interpreting the Bible. I have a hard time picturing an Israelite in the time of Moses believing that, or somebody in the time of Jesus. I have a very hard time imagining that, like Peter, when reading Genesis one, would have thought that, and Jesus, like being like, well, you know, to God, a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years, and and. You know, like, I, and I understand that that, I think Peter could believe that. And so, like, I struggle with, like, when you when you go retroactively, like, could a historical believer who'd received this revelation, written revelation, have possibly conceived of it that way? And would that be God's intention that we would actually, he would write, he would inspire something that would be understood as historical in one generation and mythological in another, and that he would realize that in the unfolding of human knowledge that it would work that way? Like, I can conceive of that but I have a difficult time believing that's God's intention. And so for me, I just feel like I w- I'm going to start with what, I th- what seems like God's intention until I can't, at which point, so I want to tell young people and people listening, like, because of this, I th- there's two reasons I think young earth creationism needs to be taken seriously in how we behave. The first is it might be theologically necessary. Well, there's three reasons. One, it might be true. Two, it might be theologically necessary so as to not become apostates. And three, I don't like how young earth creationists are ignored and bullied, frankly. I don't like the way people, I feel like people behave smugly about this. And I, when I listen to young earth creationists, people who have real scientific credentials, I believe they're making arguments in earnest. I don't think that they're making just arguments they know are false or just like just picking little bits. I think they're trying to make real arguments. And I feel like the church is even silencing them. And I think that's, that just makes me angry. Cause like, it's like that line in Captain America. I don't hate Germans. I just hate bullies. And like, I don't hate evolutionists and I don't hate like, progressives. I just hate, I hate when people bully people and it bothers me when people try to like refute an idea by in using power. It just bothers the heck out of me. And so I think that whenever people do that with a view, I'm more, I, I'm more interested in that view. And I actually want to platform that view. And I actually want people to take that view seriously. Right. And I think that young earth creationism is one that is being deplatformed in the church at a time when it's trying to make even more serious arguments that are scientifically predictive. That is that it's more of it. It's more scientific in that sense than it's ever been. Right. And frankly, I know how hard it is to get a PhD and how hard it is to get in places like Harvard and some of the places where the people have gotten these credentials. And it's really hard to argue. Like these people don't have any good credentials. I mean, like that's pretty dumb, right? Like you went to Harvard, you studied molecular biology for God's sakes. Like I think you have the right to say something and it bothers me when churches are just like, you know, whatever, we're not going to deal with that. Cause the problem is, is what they're afraid of, what they're it's just, is that's just fear. They're afraid that the outside city, like in Madison, if Madison believes we're young earth creationists at high point, they'll just attack us and ridicule us to no end about it. They'll just bully us. And I think people are afraid of that. And I, I just think fear is a terrible way to live, you know? And it, well, I should say it this way. It's a very unbiblical way to live. Yes. And I, I think it's also important and, and eye-opening is, as you mentioned, bullying. To me, what's eye-opening to me anytime there's an argument is how does each side treat the other? And part of what I've documented is the other side will say, how do they explain the existence of creationists of all Mm -hmm. stripes, from lay level to professional? Well, they're Bible zealots, just a little too zealous of the Bible. That may be reasonable for many lay level folks, or they're just not informed about evolution. If we just could educate them in evolution, they'd change their mind. Mm-hmm. Okay, maybe for non-science people, that might be reasonable. But then they have to explain why are there 
people like me or others, I'm just one of many, not a high percentage, but there are people who say, no, the science says, Bible and science say creationism. And if you look at what, uh, I mentioned biologos just because that's who we've, they're, they're prominent, we've, we've engaged them. I've personally sat across the aisle, sat at uh, Evangelical Theological Society meeting with Daryl Falk, others debated Dennis Venema at Southeastern Seminary. That's why I mentioned these names and the organization. You can find that, listeners, you can find that on YouTube. Nathaniel debating, um, what's Venema's first name? I can't remember. Dennis Venema. Dennis Venema, who was the science side author in Adam and the Genome, which was like the big famous book that Biologos put out. And so you can find that on on YouTube. There's the two of these guys debating these issues. Yes, thank you. And there's an article series I did on our website, answersingenesis.org, where I, I go through his book chapter by chapter. And one of the articles I, and the questions I raise in the article is, uh, are creationists liars? Because that's what, mm-hmm. frankly, he puts in print and says, and I've seen that elsewhere from theistic evolutionists. Well, at the end of the day, some of these guys who are saying the science says otherwise, they're just lying. Because we've refuted them. They should know better now. So therefore, if they keep holding the view, they're lying. I think the logic for them is mainstream science is self-correcting. So if you disagree with mainstream science, consensus mm-hmm. science, you should know better, and the fact that you're still disagreeing means you know better but are saying the opposite anyways. It's not possible mm-hmm. in their mind that there could be a, a legitimate scientific argument for it. Right. Of course, the same holds true if you reverse positions. How do creationists explain the fact that 97 99% of the scientific community rejects young earth creationism? Or I have it put often to me by reporters. Do they think that, do I think there's some grand conspiracy to suppress the actual truth? Or do I throw out science altogether? That was, I think, a Cincinnati reporter who put the question to me that way. Mm-hmm. And what I've put in print, and again, this is in the, I think in the article series responding to Venema, as I say, and, and elsewhere on our website and articles I've written, the answer is a, a third option. Evolutionists and the mainstream community just isn't aware of what young earth creationists believe. For one, our educational system, again, going back to court decisions in the 1980s, forbids the teaching of alternate ideas this is not some grand conspiracy it's just the law and so yeah, why like, would you... it's like gay porn in the 80s like you just can't find it okay i'm not as familiar with that to say yay or nay but... <laughs> sorry i just wanted to make it weird at the end thing. okay ahead, good so it, you you how do you expect anyone to come out of that system where they're forbidden from being exposed to the other side and yeah think they're going to be anything but evolutionists and in, in fact, that's one of the things evolutionists decry, the great discrepancy between the scientific community, 97% evolution, and the general public, which a third still reject evolution. How can that be possible after everything we've done? This is sort of the, the lament. How do I explain that? So again, they've, they've never been exposed to it. And I've actually documented this on our website as well. You have some cases where people do try to engage. Mostly it's forbidding it. Again, it's hard to find a debate opponent if you're a young earth creationist because evolutionists recognize we don't gain anything from it, so they avoid it. I mailed my book to leading evolutionists and heard nothing. They don't want to engage it, but there are a few, Biologos being an example, others. There's a guy, Joel Duff, who writes a blog that's basically dedicated to debunking young earth creationist claims. Again, I have to explain that. How do I deal with the fact that when people do engage, they still end up rejecting Young Earth Creation Science, smart people. They're not dumb. Mm-hmm. PhDs, been trained, published research, so forth, teach in the classroom. 
yeah. jobs at universities, so on. Wouldn't you say we, we all have non-intellectual reasons for some of the views we have? Like whether or not people will respect us in our field, whether or not we can get research money for what we want, whether or not we ha- it increases our options with the opposite sex. Like there's lots of reasons why. You can always psycho- give a psychological explanation for why people think things, right? I mean, there's other than than the view itself and its logic and evidence. Can't you? I'd say in theory, yes. What surprises me is none of those are necessary. Because what I've encountered is even those people who try to engage young earth creationism still don't read the other side. Yeah, when you test whether or not they have knowledge, they don't have it. Yeah, and I've put what's what I've wanted to do sometime in a debate is uh, ask some of my opponents, hey, why do you think, how, how do you think I explain your rejection of young earth creation. And my guess is most of them will say, I don't know, even though it's in print on the website and just to illustrate mm-hmm. the point, because they don't read what we print. Yeah. And that's what I've encountered. And not that I don't want to drop a bunch of names, but I've personally witnessed this. Oh, you're all wrong. Well, do you actually know what we believe? And you press them on it and they don't. I'm like, how can you, how can you be an intellectually right. honest debater? If you don't even, you, you should know the other side cold. If you right. think you can, that's why I read. The you other are side. supposed can, to know it. You're supposed to yeah. read. I can stuff. tell you what Daryl Falk believes. I mean, we, the two months before we had our Evangelical Theological Society conversation, I think is what it was called. You mm-hmm. came out for lunch for two hours or four hours, whatever it was. And uh, four hours, I think, because he wanted us to get to know each other. Great. He said, well, let me, let me just give you a heads up on what I was going to say. His four points or whatever in favor of evolution. And I would finish the points for him. And that to me is, that's just debating 101. If you're going right. to engage an opponent, you should know his position better than he does. Right. But I haven't seen that from the other side. Again, maybe just because it's, well, no one agrees with you, so how could you possibly have a reasonable argument? Right. That, to me, explains what's oh, yeah. going on, and I think that for a layperson. I mean, that's, that's the logic I apply in fields outside of mine. How well, does each I mean, side engage the other? I've certainly experienced that Like when I was in college like with sec- just secular arguments. Like I yeah. had to know them five times better than other people knew them, which was great for me intellectually. I grew so much, right? And and I find that true in Madison now with progressive arguments and arguments about human dignity, those sorts of things. From a Christian perspective, I just have to know them like dead on cold. I want to say one thing for people, if you're going to look into some young earth creationist stuff, I, I want to prepare you for something. The non-young earth creationist people, when they talk about young earth creationists, tend to be dismissive. And so when you read them, you need to like look past that and you need to like, realize that they're doing something that's not very good and whatever. When you, you read some of the young earth creationist stuff, now this is my experience. Okay. So you guys can disagree with me if you want. I find that some young earth creationist stuff will be a little bit defensive and a little bit exasperated, like in its tone. Like so I've read some stuff on answers in Genesis where like the author just like, you can just tell the person's just exasperated by what's happening or like they're a little defensive. Like how can these people do this? Right. And I'm, I, I would just say, just, you just got to look past that to the argument. Just, like, yes, people are like arguing back and forth. They get kind of steamed up and upset about why, you know, they've told these people the truth. They haven't changed their mind. What's the problem? And so you'll read some stuff, I think, on Answers to Genesis, some of these other sites, and you'll be like, this person seems very upset. You know, my encouragement is just like, yes, this is a intense argument. People have invested their lives in it. It's a big deal. You just got to look past like why they picked that adjective and like read the argument and then think about it. And don't don't think that because the tone of an argument might be a little bit defensive. Like if you're three, one to 3% of a population, the idea that you could be defensive in an argument is not weird. Right now. I can't say I've seen that much in Nathaniel's articles, 
But some of them on this site are like that, I think, in my opinion. And I just, my practice is just to look past that, look at the argument, see if it's true, try to verify the facts, and then try to be objective. And um, I think that Christians should not let evolutionists get away with being dismissive. And then to a certain extent, they need to see through or recognize that I don't think they should be thrown by, by a sometimes exasperated tone in, a, in some of the writings. So anyway, that's just my thought. One other thing I want to add to that that I discovered that may explain why this is the way it is was in a series of closed-door meetings that were held on a seminary campus among young earthers and old earthers, basically saying, can't we find some common ground where we agree evolution is wrong and work together? And one of the topics for the year's discussion was, let's see what we each think about the importance of this issue. Like, what is the importance of the age of the earth? And old earthers basically all agreed it's a category three issue. So if category one are cardinal doctrines, category two, maybe secondary issues that divide denominations. Do you speak in tongues or not? And what should your church structure be? These sorts of things. And tertiary category three being there should be no reason to divide at all. Mm -hmm. The, The old earthers were basically all, it's a category three. And all the young earthers were basically near category one. This is almost a cardinal doctrine because it hits at core near gospel and inerrancy issues. What was surprising to me is to discover these two attitudes or positions made it essentially impossible to have a conversation. Because young earthers would come in and say, we've got to resolve this because this is such a critical issue. Mm -hmm. And the old earthers would kind of kick back and say, yeah, we'll get to it. And this is not a criticism or a compliment to either side. That's Mm -hmm. the natural outcome of where you start on the importance of the issue. And I think that's also part of the background in in tone or whatever else in various websites. At least it's been helpful for me to say, oh, this this is why young earthers sometimes sound the way they do, old earthers sound the way they do, is because they view the importance of the issue very differently. And that has major ramifications. And so just to discover, oh, it's this foundational difference that predicts so much else and sadly even makes it basically impossible to have a conversation that was eye-opening for me and something i didn't anticipate yeah yeah it's good my guest today has been dr nathaniel jensen his book is replacing darwin the new origin of species um there is the uh simpler version replacing darwin made simple um, if you want to understand stuff about um, our, the, the progress of our genetic knowledge, the first couple chapters are particularly good on that, um, and they explain it really thoroughly. And then um, there's a number of arguments for his position after that. Um, thanks so much for spending all this time with us. Thanks so much for being on our, our podcast. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you like this episode, rate us, review us on your favorite podcast platform, and also share this episode with a friend. That is the best way that we have to reach new listeners. If you have an idea for a question that you want us to answer on the podcast or just a general podcast topic, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org and we'll do our best to fit it in. Also, if you'd like to find more episodes of the podcast, you can do so by going to highpointchurch.org slash podcast, or else we're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, other apps like that. So until next time, thanks for joining us for this episode of Engage and Equip.